0: Well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12, and that's page 899 in your pew Bible. It's John chapter 12 this morning. This is a rich chapter. We've spent the better part of four weeks just in this one chapter of John. And what John has been trying to get across to us through the life and through the works and through the ministry of Jesus Christ... He's been trying to get across to us what the difference is between a real genuine faith in Jesus Christ and one that is a counterfeit. And so we've seen that over the course of the last four weeks. We saw three weeks ago that Mary had come to Jesus and she poured out a year's worth of her her salary upon him. A a, a year's worth of wages of perfume, of ointment on Jesus' head and it trickles all the way down to his feet and she washes his feet with her hair. It is a total devotion to Jesus Christ. She's been transformed from the inside out by him, and so she has given over her whole life to the Lord. And then we saw the following week, Jesus riding into Jerusalem in what is known as the triumphal entry. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey to the shouts of praises of all the people and the palm branches are going out and the children are singing Hosanna and the highest and they're thrilled to see Jesus because they believe in Jesus but they believe in him as a political liberator, not as one who has come to liberate them from the bondage and the curse that their sin brings them. So they believe Jesus but their belief in Jesus is one that is based on misunderstanding. And then, last week, we discovered that Jesus talks about true belief as even hating our own life. He uses hyperbole there. He's saying that c- compared to all of the scope of our lives, our lives are to be lives that are, that are handed over to Him in every manifestation to the point to where it appears as if we hate our life because we have such deep adoration for Jesus Christ. And all of this is not to be an issue of just pure duty, but it's to be a picture of what happens in the life of a person when that person has been transformed from the inside out by the gospel. And so we're going to look at a little bit more about what that looks like today, and especially we're going to discover the answer to the question of why it is that so many people do not believe, or at least do not believe in Jesus as they ought. So that's what's before us this morning. Let's take a moment to read our passage now from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37 though He had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in Him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed in what He heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Amen. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And we ask that God would write the eternal truth of that word upon all of our hearts. Sometimes in life, we need to have and hear conversations that we would prefer not to have and hear. You know what that's like if you've gone to the doctor and you have heard a bad diagnosis. You've you've heard a diagnosis that's not particularly pleasing to you. If you're a parent... And you've had to have that dreaded conversation about the birds and the bees with your children. That's not something you probably look forward to having. That's probably not something your children look forward to hearing from you. And you definitely look, don't look forward to going to the doctor and hearing a diagnosis that is something that's troubling. The doctor doesn't look forward to giving that to you as well. But John is bringing us something here this morning that is hard for us to hear as well. This is hard for us to take. He's giving us a commentary on why it is that people so often do not believe in Jesus Christ, savingly. They believe a lot of good things about Jesus Christ, but many people, even though we may be members of a church, even though we may be members of a church for years, even though a person may be ordained to gospel ministry, He's trying to show us the possibility that we may still be blinded to him, that we don't see Jesus as he presents himself to us in the gospel. And those blindness prevent us from seeing him savingly as we ought or believing in his gospel at all. But there's a positive side to this, and I want you to see the positive side. You have to remember that when God brings us a hard word, when he brings us something that doesn't taste well to us the first time we bite into it. He has a tendency to use it to awaken us from a slumbering, boring, tasteless, nominal kind of Christianity that doesn't truly embrace Jesus Christ and to lead us out of that and into the real thing. So that's what I would challenge you to see through the grid of this particular passage this morning. There's a hard passage before us. It's a hard passage to hear, but there's grace all over it. There's grace in it because what he's trying to do is awaken us from that slumber and drive us to find satisfaction in Christ and in Christ alone. So let me point you to the two things that I think that John is trying to zero in on here as things that distract us and prevent us from actually believing savingly in Jesus Christ. And here's the first reason that you need to see. The first reason why so many people outside of the church and inside of the church do not believe in Jesus Christ as they ought or do not believe in Him at all is because we so often crave the praise of other people more than we desire the glory of God. We we seek after human approval, human acceptance in such a way that it encroaches on any desire within our souls to glorify and enjoy God. That's one of the things that I think John is trying to get across to us here. If you look back in verse 26, a passage that we looked at last week, Jesus says that if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, that's not in our inherent nature to do that. Our nature is to serve whatever it is that we need to serve to get acceptance from other people in life or to improve our quality of life. So we see that there as as something that's Inherently difficult for us to believe and difficult for us to do. And then we look at verses 42 and 43, this passage that we just read, and we find that there are some authorities that believed in Jesus, at least on some kind of superficial level, but they wanted to privatize their faith. So when they came face-to-face with those in authority over them, those who they worked with, their friends, their neighbors, family members... They gave no evidence whatsoever that Jesus Christ was the inward source of their self-definition. That He was the one fueling their lives. That their faith and their hope was ultimately built upon Jesus Christ. They didn't show that He had penetrated into the souls of their lives. And there's a sense in which that is completely understandable. There's a lot at stake. By showing in word, in belief, in action, that Jesus had come in and made a home at the level of their soul, show that to other people, gave them the risk of being kicked out of the synagogue, to being kicked out of the church in that day. These days, that may not appear to be that big a deal, but when you got kicked out of the synagogue, you were kicked out of the community. You were ostracized from social acceptance and interaction from people. So there is a lot at stake, and we can understand this. And we can also understand it just personally in our own day and age because everybody wants to be accepted. There's nobody here, not one person here, not one person outside of here, who just enjoys ticking everybody off unless they're weird. We all want to be accepted. We all want people to approve of us. Pastors are the worst at this. They're the worst at this. I have to battle it all the time because all the time I want you just to like me. I really want you to like me. I want you to love my sermons. I want you to love what I do. But sometimes, seeking after your acceptance... And you seeking after the acceptance of other people means that you're putting your faith on the line. You're compromising it. You're not showing forth the reality of Jesus penetrating you at the level of your souls. For students, teenagers, this is particularly difficult for you because the social pressures that you face on a daily basis are enormous because you so badly want to be accepted. Everybody does. That doesn't change as you get older. And so you want to do what your friends are doing, and you're pulled by your friends in directions that are not only bad for you, but also not glorifying to God. And in the midst of that temptation, bringing glory to God, and seeking to make Him look radiant in your life, to just pour out of your life, just doesn't seem as exciting as doing whatever it is that your friends are doing, or your neighbors are doing, or your colleagues are pulling you to. So this isn't a teenager versus adult situation. It's something you take to the grave with you, that you're always trying to avoid things that are going to make you feel awkward. They're going to bring you into conflict with people that would in any way jeopardize our acceptance by them. In any way, bring about offense to them and in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel, less and less accepting of it, it's going to be the temptation of every Christian to check our identity in Christ at the door when we enter into the world, when we enter into places where there is a faith crisis, where we have to choose this day who we're going to serve. It's going to be the temptation to check out of our Christianity and check into what everybody else is doing. And when we show little if any evidence whatsoever that Christ is flaming and burning at the center of our life, we begin to live exactly how they would expect us to live, which is without Christ. And it's without the Gospel. And it shows that there is nothing about who you are in Christ, what you believe, what you say, and what you do, nothing at all that makes any distinction between you and the world. That's what happens when we Worship the idol of human approval when that becomes the source of our identity. And the thing is, is that everybody's comfortable with it. You get comfortable with it, your friends get comfortable with it. Nobody's going to really challenge you on it because everybody's comfortable and and nobody's been disturbed. And it's so easy for this issue to sneak up on you. It's so easy for it to sneak up on me. It's the way that the enemy works. The enemy doesn't come at us with all guns blazing. He doesn't come to us with a scary face. He comes to us with sweetness and the appearance of light. And and he wants to bring to us in sweet, palatable, easy ways for us to embrace, to, to, to get us, to distract us from pursuing Christ at all costs. That's what he's always seeking to do. And all the while, while he's doing that, he's pumping in a little bit of pride and a little bit of entitlement and he's seeking to empty us from the flavor of Jesus Christ at the source of our lives. Making approval by other people the the source of your life, something that you do at all costs, is something that will make you ashamed of the gospel. It's something that will make us cowardly when we face ethical dilemmas at work. It's something that will make us much more fearful about what other people think than we care about making God look beautiful in our lives. It's so subtle. It's so subtle. It almost always feels good and always feels right. But in making it a quest, our life's objective, just to be accepted by everybody, above all things, Jesus gets pushed out to the periphery. He gets pushed out to the outskirts of our life, and it makes us increasingly hardened and callous to Jesus Christ. That's what happened to these people in this story. And that's the most difficult part of this passage that we have to face, the issue of hardness, the issue of, a callous heart that the holy spirit just doesn't seem to be penetrating. And there's there's something about that especially difficult in this passage. It's a there's a part of this passage that if I my conscience was not bound to bring you the whole counsel of god, I would be exceptionally tempted to just gloss over it, to just skip it, and move on to something a little bit easier because I want you to really zero in on what john is saying here. You may have missed it the first time. So Look at what he says here. He says, therefore, they could not believe. They were unable to believe. They didn't have the ability to believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes. God has taken proactive steps to blind their eyes. He's hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. That's the second reason why people don't believe. Second reason why people don't believe is because God takes, in the lives of many people, intentional, proactive steps to prevent them from believing. You heard that correctly. That, that God intentionally keeps people from entrusting themselves to Christ alone. That He keeps people from having their sins forgiven, from being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, from being brought into fellowship and into saving relationship with Him, and from keeping them from having the hope of heaven. That's a hard word. He makes sure that it doesn't happen in very many people. And so we hear that, and then we hear so many of the other things that we know, that we've already even heard in this Gospel. John 3.16, whatever happened to that? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. What happened to 2 Peter 3.9 where he says that God doesn't wish for anyone to perish but all to come to repentance? What happened to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.4 where he says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? What about when we go to the Old Testament? We look at the prophet Ezekiel and and he says in chapter 18 that he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone so he calls us to believe. What happened to that? All over the Bible, it seems like the consensus in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God wants everybody to believe. He does not take any pleasure in the death of anybody, in the eternal separation, in the eternal condemnation of anybody. That is not something that God takes any pleasure in whatsoever. And then we see passages like this talking about how he hardens people in their sin and actually prevents them from believing no matter what would happen. That that Jesus Christ in the flesh could come and raise a man from the dead right before their very eyes and they would not believe. It already happened. It seems contradictory to the reason why John wrote this book. We're going to see it at the end, in chapter 20, that the purpose of the book was that we might believe and have eternal life. It seems contradictory to what we've been seeing in Jesus thus far. He's taking the gospel out to people and calling them to repent and believe and saying that whoever comes to me, I'm not going to cast out. It seems contradictory to that. And so it's a troubling passage. This is a troubling passage. In many respects, it seems unjust. In your relationships with people... You can take a lot of junk. We all have to take junk when we're in relationships with other people. And so we take it. Things that are hard for us. But there is a line that cannot be crossed in our relationships. We all have that line, whatever it is. And when that line is crossed, that relationship goes from being one of friends to one of enemies. And so a lot of people read passages like this. And maybe you do as well. You read a passage like this and say, I can take some of those hard sayings from God. Some of those things are not particularly palatable to me. But I can take some of that. But when I look at this, this is where God crosses the line. This is where he crosses the line. I cannot believe that. Because it seems punitive. It seems downright punitive. And it strikes against one of the only strongly held beliefs that we have in our culture. Which is that one person's beliefs and words and behavior are just as legitimate as the next person's beliefs and words and behavior. And the only time when that's not the case is when one person is failing to tolerate that of the other person. And so the fact that Jesus comes here and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And he says that there are certain commonly held beliefs and commonly held practices that contradict the Gospel and the character of God. It just doesn't seem to settle well with our modern sensibilities. And then you add to that... Passages like this one, despite all the passages that we that we looked at, where it says that God does not want anybody to perish but to come to repentance, we see that He nevertheless, nevertheless, chooses to save some and chooses to pass by others. He chooses to take some in their position of spiritual death, in their position of having no inborn interest to Jesus Christ and he softens their souls and he opens their eyes and opens their ears and enlivens them and enables them to embrace Jesus Christ savingly. And others, he, let, he passes by and allows them to go as they please and choose to live and believe as they please and eventually incur the eternal wrath of God. Well, if you're a theology junkie, this is called the doctrine of election and predestination. They are hard doctrines. Even in our own confessional standards, it says that when you talk about it, you're supposed to talk about it very carefully. Because it's hard. It's hard to take. I spoke to a couple of pastors this past week and told them that this is the passage that I had. And they said, I'm glad you're the one preaching it and not me. Because it's, it's a challenge. This issue is not hard for me when it comes to thinking about the Adolf Hitlers of the world. The Osama Bin Ladens of the world. The, the hard, fast criminals. I, I believe in a God of justice. What kind of God would, you, would God be if he didn't actually punish sin? But the hard thing for me to believe about this are the people in my life who I love, who are good people. Good people. Good people in my family. Friends. Who are still hardened and may very well go to their grave being hardened, never believing, and taking on the wrath of God. So I don't say this lightly. There are a couple of ways, though, that I think would be helpful for you in engaging with this and helpful for me, that I found helpful for me in seeking to make some sense out of this passage. Here's just one thing. One thing I have to remind myself whenever I read any part of the Bible, including this, is that I am to sit under its authority rather than to stand in judgment over it. Does that make sense? If if God is holy and just and good and true and he has created all things, he's created you and me and the whole entire world, then he has authority over it. And when he gives his word, it has that authority. And so if that's the case, then who am I to stand in judgment over it? Who am I to put myself in authority over God? That is the height of arrogance in every way. When we're confronted with things in the Bible that we don't understand, that sometimes smell like a dirty sock to us, we're not being called to check our minds at the door. And we're not saying that there aren't going to be some heavy-duty difficulties in embracing that. But we need to remember that this is God's Word. And that His Word is authoritative over us. He might just have a little bit more wisdom than you and I do and know what He's doing. And so we need to come at His Word, the hard things, the things that we don't want to believe, the things that we just naturally kick up against, and just understand it from that perspective. Sitting under its authority, knowing that His Word is a means of grace to us. That's one thing. Here's the other thing we have to remember. After Adam and Eve fell, God was under no obligation to save anybody. He was under no obligation whatsoever to save anybody. He would have been perfectly just in saying, You guys screwed up. All of your progeny, all of your children are going to be born with this inherent nature to sin and I have no obligation to them whatsoever. They offend me all the time, every day, in ways that they don't even understand and so forget them. I have no obligation to these people. I'm not lonely. I'm in perfect happy communion. I'm with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit so I don't need them in order to make me happy. But instead, God doesn't do that. He establishes a covenant immediately after Adam's sin. And it's a covenant of redemption. It's a promise of redemption. It's a promise that he is going to save his people from their sins and reconcile them to himself and give them the hope of glory. That's what he is going to do. Why? I don't know. Other than it's just the good character of God, It's the love of God that transcends anything that we can ever begin to imagine. We have a tendency to want to create a designer God. That's what we want to do. That's what people are inclined to do. We want to create a designer God who's going to fit into the categories of our life and help make our lives better. So we would never create a God that would judge us. That's one of the things that makes me want to affirm Christianity. Because I don't know why men would just create a God that would actually judge them. This is a God who says that he will judge his people. And God, the God that we would want to create, would only be the kind of God that would affirm what we believe and what we do. But the thing is is that that's not reality. I can believe all day long that eating cheeseburgers, french fries, Fritos, and sitting in front of a TV for eight hours every day is a healthy lifestyle. That doesn't make it a healthy lifestyle. And so conjuring up a God of our own imagination doesn't make it true either. And the reality here is that God is holy. He is just to punish those who violate His holiness. And we do it all the time, and yet He establishes this promise. And it's a promise that whoever will believe in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And that's a promise you have right from the third chapter of the Bible all the way going through. And it all comes to a hedge in Jesus Christ and what He does for His people in the gospel. That's what He does. He does not ignore our sin. He is just. That's what, that's what the cross is all about. The cross is, is this dual thing of total horror and ugliness on the one hand and total beauty on the other hand because that's where mercy and justice meet. It's horrible because we're seeing all of our guilt poured out on Jesus Christ and Him having to pay for it, being unjustly murdered for that. But it's mercy... He's taking on our sins. He's paying the price for it. He's reconciling us to God as we believe that. And we get forgiveness. And we get righteousness. And we get adoption into His family. And we get the blessing and the hope of being united to Him through faith. That's what He's doing there. When I read about this stuff that we've just discovered in this passage, election, predestination, those Theological jargon words here's what they tell me. they tell me that to believe in that is to be the, is to believe in the single most humbling thing that a Christian could ever know. It's the most humbling thing that we can know and it's also the most empowering thing that a true Christian could ever know it, it, it's humbling. Because Paul does not say once we got our act together, Christ died for us. No. He says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's what he's saying. It means that he took us when we were not only sick, but when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Without hope, without God in the world a wall of hostility between us and God just built up higher than we could ever even begin to climb. And He comes in and He penetrates our souls with grace and livens us enables us to repent enables us to embrace Him. And, and He adopts us as His children. The only thing that adopted children lack from their adopted parents is the DNA of their adopted parents. But what God does to us when he adopts us, is he actually gives us the Father's DNA. He pours out the Holy Spirit upon us. We get that. That's amazing. And it is humbling to us because we've done absolutely nothing whatsoever to deserve it. It comes to us purely by grace alone. Purely by grace alone. And that empowers us to. It empowers us to live the Christian life because we have that spirit of adoption, because we have that Holy Spirit who comforts us in our affliction, who empowers us to show forth His beauty, who gives wisdom to everybody who asks for it, who guides us when we don't know where to go or what to do in our life. See, Christianity isn't supposed to be this thing where you come to church and you're gloomy and you just get beat down by how awfully awful you are and how sinful you are, and then you're sent out the door and said, have a happy week. That's not what Christianity is about. It's about the fact that we don't even have a clue as to how rebellious and crooked and sinful and broken and messed up we actually are. And yet, despite all that, Christ has invaded our souls. And He said that because He's invaded our souls, there is no condemnation. There is... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are the apple of God's eye. Have you seen yourself like that ever or lately? That you are the apple of God's eye, the objects of His affection, and that nothing in all creation could ever separate you from His love, and His steadfast love and His faithfulness endures forever. That's what's true for those that He's chosen, and so it is humbling and it is empowering to live in that way. Here's the last thing. Last thing and I'll be done. I don't have any idea who God has chosen and who He hasn't. I have no idea who that is. But here's one thing I know. It's that God never, never turns away anybody who comes to Him pleading for their own life. He never turns anybody away who who comes to him and says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I claim. And so, if you have decided to stop trusting in yourself, to trust Jesus to forgive you, to trust him to bring you into his family, and to break down that wall of hostility, and to establish peace and fellowship, between you and God, and give you that hope of glory, if you believe that this morning, then you can know, despite all of this predestination election stuff, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that He will accept you as you are. And you may say, but you don't know my past. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the skeletons in my closet. Listen. All throughout the Bible, murderers, like Paul, cheaters like David, prostitutes like Rahab, thieves like Zacchaeus, addicts like the woman at the well, are all called in the midst of who they actually are at the moment to come and believe And receive forgiveness and receive grace upon grace that just gets deposited into your account every single morning. And you'll never come to Him unless you see yourself like that. Unless you see yourself as poor, as crooked, and as dead and messed up in your sin. Until you see yourself like that, you'll never believe. That's what this table is all about. This table that we're about to come to this morning, this supper that we're about to to feast upon, is a table that has qualifications for coming to it. And the qualification is, you have to be a sinner. But you have to know it. You, You actually have to know it, and believe it, and see yourself like that, and see the broken body of Christ, and the shed blood of Christ, given for you. And if you believe that, You're invited to come. And you have that promise that whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast you out. Let's pray. Father, our ears are screaming in many respects right now. There's nothing about this passage that is easy for us to take, but we know all over the place that you are good and you are gracious. And you are loving and you are compassionate. Everything you do is good and everything you do is beautiful. And so in the midst of mystery that we don't understand, my prayer for each person here, including myself, is that we would come just as we are to you without one plea in our defense except for the shed blood of Jesus for us. And I pray that we would take you at your word that you will embrace us and adopt us as your children and give us the hope of glory. That's a great message to share to others too. May you equip us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.